This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. What I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good, you can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, I'm back in the studio with my partner, Mallory Peacock. Hey there. On our last episode, we were talking about trial prep, because uh, we were getting ready for a trial. And uh, now we've tried the we've tried the case, and we wanted to share a little bit with you about you know what we learned in this trial and kind of the difference between you know the planning and then the reality once you get into the courtroom. Yeah, I, I think that's true with every trial. What you plan is not always what ends up happening in the courtroom. But I think a lot of the things that we did plan for happened perfectly. So it, I think it'll be interesting for the viewers to learn what happened. Viewers. <laughs> Spoiler alert, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and start at the end. We we did end up winning the trial, I'm happy to say. It would be really embarrassing to have done a uh, whole episode and share it with the world about how we were prepping for a trial and then get a goose egg, but uh, it will happen sooner or later. But luckily, it didn't happen this time. Uh, so the jury did find the defendant negligent and awarded $3,420,000 in damages. Uh, not as much as what I wanted, but it's still uh, you know a lot more than the client could have settled for, so we're, we're happy with it. Uh, I think the trial went fairly well, but uh, a little bit of background on the case too. Um, Mallory, you want to give some of that? Sure. So this was a construction site uh, accident case. And so it's a little different than what we usually do. We do a lot of trucking, but we also do workplace injury here. Um, and so in this case, our client was working on a utility pipeline construction project where they had to dig trenches, install new utility lines. Um, the company that he was working for was digging out the trenches. OSHA has a lot of rules and regulations about what you need to do to protect workers inside of trenches. This company does none of them. Um, Sends our client into the trench. Um, Predictably, the trench collapses on top of him um, and the force of the dirt of the trench pushes him into the pipe that he was working on and kills him. And OSHA did find that the company did not provide the required trench protection, uh, although we had all kinds of evidentiary fights about how much of that we could and could not get into evidence and what we could say about that, because the jury has to make their own independent decision. They're not bound by the OSHA, and the OSHA investigation settled also. It was not a, a final trial, so that was interesting. Uh, and for those of you outside of Texas, in Texas, we have uh, optional workers' comp, uh, and this company... Uh, did not have workers' compensation in place at the time. They claimed that they should have, and they actually have their another lawsuit against an insurance agent that's going to happen later, uh, but they did not have workers' comp coverage. So uh, we actually directly sued the employer, which is different than most of these cases where you're going after a general contractor or a third party. Um, so let's talk about some of the... The challenges. Let's just start first of all with the uh, some of the logistical challenges because we were set for trial on a Tuesday and we were supposed to be the only case set for trial that Tuesday is the Tuesday of uh, Martin Luther King Day uh, week, uh, and we were guaranteed we were going to go. We had all our experts ready. We had our hotels reserved. We had a U-Haul reserve to haul down all of our trial exhibits and posters and stuff. What happens? Yeah, um, so we got a call from the court saying that it just wasn't going to happen. I mean, it's just there was issues with whether or not we could get a jury panel. There were issues with the court schedule. Um, There were just all kinds of issues. So they decided to bump us to the next week, which kind of set us into panic mode a little bit because we had 
planned everything for the week we were supposed to go. Um, and they just moved us up one week. So we had almost no time to sort of recoup and gather everybody again, make sure the experts were available, make sure we were available, um, all that kind of stuff. In fact, we were driving into town. We had, uh, it's about a four hour drive from San Antonio where we live to, uh, Enberg, uh, Texas, where the trial was going to be. And we were almost to town to go meet with our clients for uh, additional trial prep when we got the call that it was going to be yet another week. Uh, right. Uh, you know, luckily, um, while it was a big kind of deflation for us, we had all our energy going. We, um, we were worked up. We were ready for the trial. Um, you know, luckily they only pushed it a week, so we didn't have to redo a lot of work or anything like that. And, um, our expert was fortunately available. So, uh, it all ended up working out just fine to have it the next week, but you know, you just have to kind of roll with the punches. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the, that's the lesson learned. I think from that is you just have things happen that are totally outside your control. Uh, you getting mad is just wasting energy. Uh, and so you just have to accept life for what it is. If the expert wasn't available, we either would have done a trial deposition, uh, cause defense counsel couldn't claim unavailability. They were, supposed to be there ready for trial, or we would have had to just beg for another date, which we didn't want to do. So that's, that's I guess, the first lesson there. Right. Um, and I think, you know, with the case itself, there were a lot of a lot of challenges. Um, you know, it sounds like a cut and dry case. Someone gets sent into a trench with no trench protection. The trench collapses and kills them. That sounds like an easy win, right? Um, what were some of the challenges that we faced on in the case itself? Well, I think the one of the biggest challenges that we had is we had to try a case with no eyewitnesses. And what I mean by that is, of course, our client, our decedent is dead. Um, the foreman, actually, for the company had died of unrelated causes in the interim before he could be deposed. There were two employees that we identified and our um, witness, our, no, sorry, our investigator went and spoke to them. And it sounded like they were going to say great things. We subpoenaed them for depot. They refused to show up. So we're left with the choice. We can, we can have them arrested, but I doubt that their testimony would remain favorable. Uh, and so what we had is we had really good employee statements that were given to the police department when they investigated. And then there were statements given to OSHA, although OSHA doesn't give you the individual witness statements because they want to protect the anonymity of who, what employee said what. We can have the summary. And then OSHA did you know at least uh, summarize what the foreman and what the owner of the company told OSHA. Uh, but it did present a challenge to try to try the case on witness statements. Luckily, they're all admissible statements are a party opponent. But I think one of the consequences of that is there was a fight uh, as to whether or not a certain document the defense had, they claimed it was something that they created six months after the incident where they claimed that our guy was actually instructed to work in a shallow part of the trench and he chose to jump into the deep part and it was his, his sole choice of breaking instructions and not following his training uh, that caused the uh, trench collapse and his death, uh, which was pure hearsay, I thought. But I think I thought so too. <laughs> I think uh, when they were claiming it was a business record, I think that because we got in all our statements, I think the judge wanted to even it out and give them a, a fair fight. And I think the, the, that ended up getting in because of that. Yeah. Um, you know, it, so that was a challenge for liability that there were no eyewitnesses that could come um, and testify. But we also had some challenges, I think, in the damages we area. Did, but I want to go back to liability more. Okay. You know, one, one, one thing I found in, you know, you're looking at the case and we read the witness statements and they seem solid because we read the OSHA conclusions. They go with OSHA conclusions. We're fine. When you're actually trying the case, you know, they're they're usually written by the police officer. They're written by somebody. In this case, they wrote them in Spanish. They translated. They're not really super detailed. Yes. And, you know, I think they all left enough ambiguity. Like they said, oh, we're digging in the trench. Well, they didn't say specifically what part of the trench they were digging in. And we could tell from OSHA's conclusions, at least OSHA, after talking to them, concluded that they were in the deep part of the trench. But we didn't have... They didn't, but we were in the part of the trench that was nine feet deep, or we, you know, just nobody had thought about these arguments at the time. And so we couldn't ask the kind of follow up questions you would ask with a witness. And it, it made it more difficult. 
Right. And for a little background for people listening that don't know anything about trenches, which I did not know until we worked on this case, um, there are some rules that OSHA has about what kind of protection you need in trenches that are more than five feet deep and trenches that are less than five feet deep. And the problem with this particular trench is that it was angled at a slope. So there was a portion of the trench that was nine feet deep and there was a portion of the trench that was like four feet deep. And there was a question about where were people working? Where were they instructed to work? And it makes a difference for our case for what kind of trench protection would actually be required. And whether they were negligent or not. Right. And whether they were negligent in what they did provide. Um, so it actually, that was a key component of the case that was, it was difficult for us to have follow-up questions about just because of that. Yeah. It worked uh, out, but it was it, it was harder than I thought it was going to be when we were first planning the trial. And it wasn't really until, you know, the week of when we're getting ready to the week before when we're getting ready to try the case that I really realized, like, man, I really wish I had someone to ask follow up questions. Yeah, I think also um, the power of the testimony or the statements even, or the evidence is lost when you don't have a live witness. So we had to get all of these statements in through our expert witness, right? So somehow we had to present them to the jury um, in a way that was useful. Um, And so that's the solution that we came up with is that we would present them through our expert. Um, But because there were no follow-up questions, a lot of, a lot of it was lost and it gave fodder for cross-examination because there aren't details in there. So the cross-examination is, well, what about these details? Yeah. And the expert would have to say, well, I don't know. This is what I have, you know? Yeah. So it, it, they lost a lot of power um, that we would have otherwise had with a live witness. We were also able to use them when we cross-examined the owner of the company because he, he wasn't there that day, but he came in and still gave their story saying, well, based on our investigation, this is what happened and this is why it was all right. So we were able to like, you know, put put them up on a screen and use them to read and cross-examine. But it's still not as powerful as having a real witness there. Right. Right. And there's um, just questions unanswered. I mean, we had questions that were unanswered about the case. So I would imagine the jury did, too. Yeah. Um, Which makes all of your evidence less powerful. And it just gives more for the jury to talk about back in the jury room and wonder about and question about. And ultimately, I think it brings your damage award down a little bit. Um, You know, if the live witnesses had been there, maybe it would have been higher because they would have been sure of what we were saying. Yeah, I think that's that's very possible. And it also meant that, you know, at first on this case, I thought it was such a slam dunk. I didn't really have to work on preponderance as a standard. And then, you know, we used the Keith Mitnick's uh, doubt is not an out to talk about preponderance. But I really did have to talk about the burden of proof because they were going to be able to raise some doubts just because of the fact that, you know, the statements weren't written to answer all of our questions. The statements were just what a witness told the police that day. Uh, And so we needed that. Right. And thank you, Mr. Mitnick. Uh, I've used that many times and it works. It works. It's so powerful because that it's always the defense is what about this and what about that and throw anything at the wall that sticks. I mean, in every case I've ever tried, that's been part of the defense's strategy. Um, but we don't have to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. And so we just have to keep reminding the jury of that. And, and the best thing is doubt is not. I mean, it's just so powerful and it's so memorable for, for jurors. Reminds me of Johnny Cochran. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about we had some challenges on damages as well. Yeah. Yeah. So um there were, it was a huge combination of factors in this case that gave us challenges for damages. The first was that our client was working under um, someone else's name with a social security number that was not his because he didn't, he wasn't documented. And usually, because I know uh, if we don't explain this, we're going to get some comments about that should never come in. Right. Why did you let that in? And we would normally, uh, and we briefed it up, uh, exclude this evidence because the law in, in Texas and in most states actually is that uh, evidence of legal status is not admissible. Right. But in this case, because we only had witness statements and half the witness statements called them by one name and half called them by another. And then they explained in the police report that there was a different name. We could not find a way to prove our case without it. Right. And so this it goes back to only being able to try it through the witness statements instead of the actual witnesses. Um, we had to make a choice. Do we get these statements in and does the jury make sense of them? I mean, in some kind of way or do we keep out the the status? I mean, our other issue was that we were afraid that it would come out 
some other way. And if we didn't address it, the elephant in the room, then it makes it a bigger deal. Yeah, there's a second argument that the defense had for admitting the uh, our client's immigration status. And it's one that actually really pisses me off. Uh, and, and, I, and I like the defense lawyers. They're friends of mine. Uh, but and then, but they did a good job defending their client. And, you know, they made whatever arguments they, they could to win. But this argument just really, really got under my, my skin because I really love our client and, and believe that she's a, a legitimate, sincere person. But they'd only been married for nine days. At the uh, time that he died. At the time that he died. Uh, you know, they, there was a... She thought they were common law married before that, but they had their wedding ceremony nine days before he died. And she, they didn't have a lot of pictures. Uh, they just weren't busy. It's an old case. We took over this case from another lawyer. Uh, long story, but it was 10 years between the time of the death and the time uh, that we got to try the case. Uh, we'd have been on for two years, trying to get to trial the whole time. We finally got to go two years later. Uh, but back at the time, they didn't own phones that had cameras. And so there aren't, like, pictures a lot. They just are very, very few. And they made the uh, argument that the jury could consider whether this was a real marriage or this was a sham marriage to get him papers. And you know, another thing is our lady was a bigger lady. Um and I think, and she was a couple years older than him. And I think they were kind of implying or hoping the jury would think, well, why would a guy like a lady that's, you know, obese and older than him, that this had to all just be a sham uh, to get papers. And unfortunately, we were convinced that there was a, enough of a risk that the judge is going to let in the immigration status or exclude our, report, our witness statements, which would have been just as bad right. as then we were lost on liability, that if we didn't address it for dire, uh, that it would be a problem. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of attorneys that forget, um, and I've heard a lot of attorneys say this, a limiting motion is not a motion to exclude it for the duration of the trial. It's a motion to approach the bench before you talk about it, that someone has to open a door or there has to be a reason later on in the trial. And the problem is that that means that the judge can always change their mind based on the way that the trial goes. Um, and whenever you have any kind of limiting motion, that's always the risk. So you have to weigh, weigh that, you know, with the odds of, of it coming in, because what you don't want to do is not address it, not talk about it. And then it comes in during the defense's case in chief and there's nothing you can do about it. And we did find out in, in jury selection that at least there are some jurors that absolutely came forth and said, there is, they said, wait a minute, this is the case where someone's undocumented working under someone else's name and they're suing after they got killed or found a suing after they got killed. I'm like, I can't do that. That, that just offends me so much. That's what some of the jurors said, not me. Right, that right. They, uh, that they just could not even consider uh, finding anyone negligent or warding any, uh, allowing any damages. Uh, so if we hadn't ward iron on it, that could have been very bad. Right, right. We could have got some people on the jury that should, that would have, I mean, just totally tanked the case. But, uh, so that, that was, that was a challenge. Uh, that was a real challenge. We also had no real, you know, our guy was a very low wage earner, so we didn't want to even try to put in economic damages. We also didn't have, you know, tax returns, any tax return that would have been filed would have been under someone else's name. We right. wouldn't have a right to go get them. Right. We just didn't really have a good way to prove what the lost earnings were. And, um, we, and we didn't want to because it would have anchored it to a low number. Right. Right. It wouldn't have been that much. In fact, the, the defense actually uh, brought up the, how much he weighed, made and said, you know, if you buy negligence, then, you know, $9 an hour, which is what he made, would be a good measure for her loss. <laughs> right, right. And it was a low number. I mean, I think yeah. we calculated it out and it would have been, I think, like $600,000 or yeah. something like that. So over the course of his lifetime. Um, so that was not a good anchor for us. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the jury didn't use that right. <laughs> method to calculate. Um, you know, it's always hard to know what, what method they used, but yeah, uh, they did ask for a calculator. So they used something, but <laughs> yeah, they did ask for a calculator. So that's something that was interesting. We got, uh, during the jury deliberations, and I actually don't know if this happens in every state or how it works, but in Texas, the jurors will write a question, um, to the judge and the judge will present the question to the lawyers and then 
the judge decides how to answer it um, with input from the lawyers. If the judge asks for it, you know, most of the time, the answer to most questions is you have all the information you need. Please go back and keep deliberating. Um, but we got some interesting questions in this case or some interesting notes. Um, yeah. So the first note, I thought, you know, it was maybe 30 minutes after they started deliberating and we got a note already, which always your heart skips a beat a little bit. You're like, yes. oh, my gosh, do they have a verdict already? What's going on? You know, a, a fast verdict is usually not a good verdict for a plaintiff. And um, anyway, so we got the note and it was that the court reporter forgot to give the exhibits to the jury. They were asking for the, the exhibits. So that one was, you know, nothing. Yeah. Um, the second note that we got was... Uh, about common law marriage. So this was an interesting challenge for everybody. How do you answer this? Yeah, because it was not part of the case. They were legally married. There's no question about it. But in deposition, uh, the our client had, had contended that she was common law married uh, from the day that he moved in with her, which is about a year and two months before he was killed. Uh, and we didn't even bring it up, I don't think, in direct, because it wasn't relevant. The fact that they, they loved each other, they lived together for a year and two months, they had gotten married, they were married. You know, we're talking about the lost future. But the the defense lawyer brought it up uh, during, the during the cross-examination to try to attack her credibility. And then also brought up stuff like, well, you were receiving, and it was normally it wouldn't, wouldn't come in, but we had realized a judge who I, I really like by the end of the trial, I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing, but we had a judge whose inclination is just to let, let it all come in and let the jury sort it out. Right. And a lot of judges, are, I think, are like that because it's, it's less likely to be overturned if the jury hears everything versus if there's something left out that was critical. Well, I, mean, I, I don't know. Maybe some of us, if we had objected enough, we, we may have created reverse wear on our, if we wanted to appeal it, but I'm not going to appeal a multi-million dollar verdict in this case. <laughs> yeah. uh, but one of the things, so he brought up, well, you know, you were on food stamps. Did you tell him when you got caught common law Mary that you now had another wage earner and you weren't eligible for food stamps anymore and stuff like that. And then, you know, let him get into some stuff that, you know, wasn't as pretty. It really kind of gummed up the works. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and what do you do at that point? Right. And so then the jury came back with a question about what is, what is, what is it, what is legally required to be common law married or something, something to that effect. And they thought there was a time period. Right. Right. Which That's, is not in Texas law. There is no time period. Yeah. It's a misconception that I think almost everybody has. Uh, <laughs> I always hear people tell, tell me it's sick. You have to be married for six months. I don't know where people get this from, but that's what everybody thinks. Right. Um, and, and I wanted to instruct the jury that um, if they're asking the question, why don't we just tell them the truth? You have to agree to be married, live together as man and wife, and hold yourself out to other people as man and wife. There's no time limit. And the judge said, no, he just, I think we finally got a note saying that's not, a, that's not an issue for you to decide in the case or something. Right, right. That Because ultimately, we were debating whether it would be... If we send the note, the regular note back, which is you have all the information that you need to decide this case, please decide it. it I think we were saying it would improperly mislead the jury that they need to make a decision about common law mar marriage in this case, which they did not because yeah. they were legally married. And we were aware that, they, and of course, we can't talk to them during that other room. That maybe they were confused thinking that that was something we had to prove in order to recover in the case, which is right. that we had a marriage certificate. They were legally married. Right, right. Uh, in fact, at that point, I was like, Man, maybe we should introduce the marriage certificate. I thought since it wasn't controverted, we need to right. put their certificate and evidence. Right. Uh, and I thought I had addressed it in my closing too. I don't remember. But. We had addressed it. It was a, it was something, you know, and this is the case, if you've ever watched a focus group um, deliberate, they go off on these weird tangents and this one person just can't get something out of their head. And so then they're all just talking about it for hours sometimes um, about some non-issue in the case and then they all move on from it and never talk about it again and proceed accordingly. And they came around and I heard this secondhand because I've not spoken to the jurors but uh, had lunch with the defense lawyer and he spoke to the jurors and he said that evidently there were a couple that were against us and what brought it around was the foreman said look we all took an oath you know we have the, we have to follow these instructions we have to base it on the evidence in the case and that brought them around to doing the right thing but there were three jurors that just did you know didn't particularly like our lady and wanted to give her money and i think you know i think part of it is just the the prejudicial stuff that came in kind of spilled over and just made her falsely made her appear to be in their eyes not worthy right. uh, and that's the problem when you're when you're representing people especially in this political environment yeah uh you're you're representing people that aren't educated you're representing people that 
she actually was legally a, a U.S. citizen, but right. you're dealing with undoc- issues of undocumented status. I mean, it it, uh, it brings out some ugliness in some people that we just have to know is there, and it's a bit of a wild card when we try cases, which is why we normally would keep it out. But in this case, there was just there was no way it was going to stay out. There was no way. And um, for those of you listening, said yes, I would have kept it out. I would have found a way. The judge was not going to let us like redact and type in a different name in the report. <laughs> right, we thought one. about it. We talked about it, but it wasn't going to happen. Uh, so, you know, it's better to have a jury maybe hear the bad stuff and not give you as much money than to not hear the evidence of liability and give you no money. Right, right. Um, and, it, and it was a really tough decision that we really, really went back and forth on. And we, like Michael said, we briefed it um, and made a, kind of a game time decision yeah. of what we were going to do the night before. We we had all the briefing ready to go. I mean, we know what the law is. It just we decided on a cost benefit analysis that this was the best way to do it. And ultimately, it worked out. I mean, yeah. but when you're in trial, you have to do there, there, You just have to go. Sometimes, you know, you just have to go with your gut, make the best decision you can make. And uh and try the case. And, and then, you know, I wish we had perfect answers because then our clients only get one shot, but that's, that's yeah. what you can do. Well, and sometimes what's legally allowed or what, uh, what you could do, um, is not necessarily the best strategy for the case. Right. So just because you can do something doesn't mean you necessarily should in right. every case. And you just, that's what makes this an art and not a science. Exactly. Each year, the law firm of Callen Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now back to the show. So we had the pre-trial, uh, the on the I guess the Monday we just did a pre-trial in the afternoon and did jury selection the following Tuesday. So we had a juror panel that was told to come on Monday, sat around all day Monday, and then went in Tuesday morning finally to actually get to be on a panel. I don't know if some of them would have been on a panel the day before and not selected or not. Yeah, uh, but they were already. And sorry, Delamont talks about from hostage to hero. You want to talk about hostages? The second day of having wasted your whole first day, uh, a lot of people were not thrilled to be there. Yep, it was a low energy group. Yeah. I will say they uh, not thrilled to be there. Um, and you know, frankly, and sorry is right about this um, in her book that. They don't understand what's going on or what's even coming next. They don't know if they're going to have to keep doing this over and over and over for days. No one tells them any of this information. Lawyers know, but they they literally have no idea. They don't even know when lunch is, like she says. Yeah. So that it's it's stressful to be in a situation where you really, really don't know what's going on. And I think that you handled this really well in Port Iyer. You gave them the basics right up front. Like, this is what we're doing. This is our plan. These are our goals. Um, hopefully, we can get you out of here quickly. And I wasn't, uh, I can't really take credit for it because what I did is I took what I've learned. I decided to try a Sari Delamont for Dyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've tried different methods. Uh, I like a more inclusive for Dyer. Um, whether I'm right or wrong scientifically, I can't tell you. Uh, but I, it's what I've been doing lately, and it, and it seems to work more often than not. Uh, I can't tell you what the result would have been had we done it differently, I, but I liked it. The So, yeah, I followed her method, which is, first of all, you tell them what we're doing, why we're here. Uh, and, you know, you, you get create that design alliance, like, you know, I, I want to try to give you a choice. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I think I felt pretty good about doing her thing where we bring up, you know, this is a case about you know, something that happened in the workplace. Anyone here have safety rules in the workplace? And the great thing we did is that so many people had jobs and jobs that's fragile, even like teachers and, 
you know, that where OSHA rules applied and, and people liked them. Yeah. Well, and there was a, um, a kid on our journey. I say a kid because I think he was maybe 18 or 19. So it's probably his very first ability to be a juror. He yeah. gets called, right? Um, he actually ended up on our jury and he, uh, he knew about OSHA rules from his theater program in yeah. high school. <laughs> Apparently they had to follow, follow some kind of OSHA rules when they were building sets and stuff <laughs> like that. So, I mean, it was just amazing how almost everybody was familiar with them. Right. And the, uh, and, I, and I felt really, really good about it. One thing, Saria, because I talked to Saria, I, I work with Saria as a, as a coach. And so I was talking to her about my word iron and, and uh, one thing she said is like, just don't start off with like I would have done before I worked with Saria. I was like, one of the things I'm afraid of in this case is my clients undocumented because you'll get a lot of pushback. But we started talking about, you know, this case of also death. What do you think? You know, is it okay to sue for death? Well, you you, know, you do for devil's advocate. Well, well, no one's going to bring it back. And I think, I can't remember, I think it was with, under the workplace safety rules where I brought out. I didn't want to do under the money part. Right. What if the person who got killed is undocumented? Does that make any difference? And we had two Border Patrol agents on our panel. Yes. Which, if you're going just by demographics, would scare you. And they were both super strong uh, on it. It doesn't matter whether you're documented or not, you still have the same right to the workplace safety and. Right. Uh, we got to do a little talk with them about how, you know, they get criticized a lot, but actually the heroic efforts where they're, they're like going out and now they're arresting them afterwards, but they are going out and rescuing people and putting their own lives in danger sometimes. Uh, that when people get stuck in bad places when they're trying to cross mm-hmm. either in the water or out in the desert somewhere or something. And, uh, I honestly think they, neither one made it on the panel, but I actually think either one of them would have been fine for us on that issue. I, I, shockingly I, enough. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, the things that they said and their thoughts about the value of human life were um, really touching. Both of them had touching stories about it. They didn't end up on the jury, but yeah. One thing that did disappoint me uh, is at the end, I asked, well, who would like to be on the jury and less than half the people raised their hand. I was hoping for more than that. And uh, I think what happened is, you know, I'm learning a new skill set from sorry. Mm-hmm. And so in the getting them, the, the, I was already good at getting people talking, but the, the going back and forth between being authoritative and then being questioned and learning how to do that, uh, I think I did a good job with that. What I did not do a good job at all was creating a group. I didn't get them talking to each other. I just forgot. I was so wrapped up in, 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 in I guess, the new things I was learning, I forgot to get them to talk to each other and create a group. But I think that uh, is partly why I didn't have so many people want to be there because they didn't feel like they're part of a group yet. So I had the exact opposite reaction that you did. Um, and I told you this at the yes, time of the jury selection, I was actually shocked that so many people wanted to be on the jury. In my mind, people don't want to be on a jury. So I, yeah. I was shocked anybody raised their hand and it was a significant number of people that said that they actually wanted to be on the jury after jury selection because they were interested and they thought it was something that, you know, they, uh, they could be a fair, cause you said, you know, I only want people that can be fair. And these people raised their hand and said, I'm interested. And I think I would be a good juror for this case, which I, I was just shocked that so many people raised their yeah. hand. We did have some good people too. Uh, so. and, and I liked the jury we ended up with. And, and even some people that didn't want to be there, like we had two poor alternates. They sat there <laughs> through the whole trial and then they got let go when deliberation started. And we got to talk to them and, you know, they were very happy uh, to have been part of the process. They wanted to know what happened. Uh, you know, one of them actually friended me on LinkedIn afterwards. And, uh, yeah. uh, you know, wanted to, like I said, it was really... So by the time they went through the process, they were glad they did. But at the beginning, you know, I'm such... I have such high standards for myself. You know, it's like, yeah, we got a multi-million dollar award, but it wasn't eight figures. You know, yeah, you know... A lot of the jurors want to be on there, but they didn't all just fall in love with me and want to be part of my group and stuff. And, you know, it's just you're always striving for perfection. It's not that I'm going to beat myself up over it, but I just, you always want to do better. And so I know that, you know, one of the things uh, I'm going to work on next time with Sari and the next time for my trial when we're doing our practice stuff is the the group formation part of Ordire, getting people to talk to each other more. Because I think that's kind of my next step on my path to mastery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that whenever you're learning a new skill, you have to put it together piece by piece. You can't just jump in and be perfect immediately at it. Um, I thought you did a great job. And like I said, I was shocked by how many people actually wanted to be on that. I had the opposite reaction. So I was yeah. excited about that. I mean, just generally the, um, so what was interesting about Vordire, um, 
is that when you do an inclusive voir dire, I've noticed this because I've seen I've seen you do it a few times. I've done it before. Um, when you do an inclusive voir dire, it sort of forces sometimes it can force the hand of the defense attorney because many attorneys do exclusionary voir dires. When you don't do an exclusionary voir dire, the defense attorney has a lot more questions that they need to get out um, than they normally would. Usually they can be the buddy that comes in and is nice or, you know, whatever. But when you when you do an inclusive voir dire, it kind of puts some of the defense attorneys kind of outside of their wheelhouse a little bit and kind of forces them to be reactive instead of. Uh, proactive, I guess. The other thing is when you really get to listening to people and communicating with people and letting them talk and respecting them, you know, a lot of defense lawyers don't want to hear it and they shut them down. So a lot of times we get that Congress. This particular lawyer on their side actually was a very gifted uh, people yeah. person. Right. And, uh, and he actually does plaintiff's work as well. And uh, he did not have that problem. Uh, but we've often had that benefit when we've done the inclusive word hire, but with right. this particular lawyer, it was good. I mean, I, I think he did. He did a good job. He, um, he had people talking. Yeah. Um, and we learned, you know, you can't, you can't stop learning from the veneer panel. As soon as the plaintiff side sits down, you can yeah. learn so much from the defenses word hire too, about who you want and why you want them. And, getting strikes out of out of those too. Um, I think some of our cause strikes actually came out of the defenses. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Questions rather than ours. So uh, you know, we didn't strike a lot of people for cause in this case, but that wasn't our goal. Um right. and I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's sort of the way it shook out in the end. I think we only struck Two or three people for cause, maybe. Yeah, they think there's some more, but they're further up. They weren't going to be right that, that we didn't t- end up talking about. We didn't need yeah. to talk about them because we just weren't going to get that far. But, um, but that wasn't our goal. So, yeah, it's a, it's a little scary. Uh, but it, like I said, it's the the couple times we've done it, it's worked out, and people have self identified when we're trying to find out who's on our team that they're not on our team. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think we've discussed this before. I'm not sure the times when I've gotten a bunch of people off for cause. And I'm really getting people that don't like our case or if I'm just, OK, I don't want to be here. I'm learning the game. I'm going to say, you know, answer the question this way. But so many judges now just come and will you follow? I don't know. The, I think this judge was all right. I don't think he would have done But so many of them just will you follow my instructions? Will you follow the law? Are you telling me you can't? You, are you telling me you're going to break right. the law and, dis- and, and, and disregard what I tell you? The, the standard from some judges is so hard to get a cause strike. Now, right. I know people will, again, they'll disagree. Well, no, but you're just not doing it. Well, yes, I have done it right. And the judge, if the judge follows the law, they, they send them off for cause. But I know judges that just feel it's their job to rehabilitate every juror and they, and they raise the standard higher than they should have been. And yes, I can go appeal it and maybe win, but uh, I'd, I'd rather just win. We had our pre-trial Monday. We had Vordire in the morning and on Tuesday. And then um, there was a big question about whether we should do opening statement, whether we should start evidence, what, what we should do next. And um, why was there a big conversation about that, I guess? I forgot. So it was a, there was a timing issue, but also I think all of us felt like we didn't want to do opening statements Call. and then Call. not present any evidence. Um, yeah. And I think the defense agreed to. And um, the big thing about that is your opening statement is a preview of evidence. And if you don't start with the evidence right away, people aren't going to remember what you said. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, especially after a really long day, people are not yeah. primed to listen to you anymore. <laughs> and, and they're already mad that they're They ended up on the jury. Some of them, some of them wanted to be there. So, yeah. you know, uh, the, the opening, I didn't feel any hostility in the opening. I felt like I had good eye contact, good body language, talking to the jurors. I, I don't know if you noticed anything different. Um, no, I thought I thought it went well. One of the things that we um, decided for the opening is we had made a bunch of visuals for this trial. I, I think it were about 100 big boards that we made um, for the trial. And some of them were supposed to be for opening. And we decided that we didn't want to use any visuals in opening. Um, why did we decide that? Yeah, and in, in fact... At first, we were excited to use the visuals because we worked a lot with Ronnie Jew, and he's really into visuals, and he sort of this, this method. Uh, one, honestly, it was a logistics thing that the the Rodney Jew method to do it properly calls for four tri four tripods, and you set up you know boards being up at the same time. They play off each other, uh, and this courtroom was not one where we could set up. A, it just wasn't enough room. Right, it was uh, a small it was a tight space. 
Uh, but the other is, you know, I was working with Sari uh, Lamont again, preparing my opening. Uh, and I already decided I didn't want to use like 50 boards. But she says, if you tell the jury it's a simple case and then you use 50 boards to prove it, that your actions and your words aren't, I mean, 50 boards is not simple. Uh, so we decided not to. And she convinced me that me being able to draw things on a flip chart showed more authority and that I, that I do well in teacher mode and I'm credible when I'm in teacher mode. Uh, and that that is something that, uh, would be better than using all those boards at that point. Not that we didn't use a lot of them later. We did. Uh, and because nothing else, I think spectacular on the opening either. I'm not happy with my opening, but that, that, you know, like I said, I did a combination, sorry, slash David ball with a slight modification that on the first few lines, because it, neither one felt right. Yeah. Sorry, I agreed with this. And, you know, these are guidelines, not set stone rules. And, um, but I felt good with the opening. Uh, then our first witness was our expert, and then we did use a bunch of boards. Right. Why? Um, so, like the jurors, I knew nothing about trenching operations or anything like that before we started working on this case. And, you know, I'm sure all the lawyers know out there and have experienced this. When you have a case, you have to learn basically everything about what you're going to present to the jury. I mean, you need to be a master of the information. Um, but then once you're a master of the information, you've mastered it so well that sometimes it's hard to put it back into regular terms and regular words for people who've never heard this information before to understand. So the purpose of the boards um, is to make your expert speak English and slow down and give authority to everything that they say. A lot of experts want to say, well, based on my training education experience, um, this is why this is the way they should do it. Or this is why this is negligence or, or whatever, whatever you're trying to get out of them. Um, but Jurors don't just believe an expert because they say that they're an expert. I mean, on the contrary, I think <laughs> jurors have trouble with believing people who are paid money to talk. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and as they should. And so one thing is we, you know, every thing our expert said had authority behind it. And we actually, and we learned this from Rodney Jew and Amy Geller Hall. The, on the lower right-hand corner. And so they started, you know, we point out and then they start seeing it. We put where it came from. So we'd have a picture of the publication or document that it comes from. We'd have the quote that we wanted, you know, our spin on it. And then we'd have where it came from for every, for every little bitty piece of information. And it forces the expert to do piece by piece. So the jury has time to, to do it. If they're wandering off from listening to him, they can read it themselves, but also shows them that, Hey, we're not just saying this, this is a legitimate authority, which the other side didn't have. Right. And so we did it um, for all the regulations that we wanted to talk about because there's a lot of regulations in trenching operations. Regulations, they read weird. I mean, they're they're weird. They're hard to understand. Um, and especially if you don't know anything about trenches, when you read them, it just sort of goes over your head. And so really breaking them down and giving the jury space to read them themselves, hear the expert explain what they are, go back and read it. I mean, it took forever. <laughs> I mean, it took yeah. a long time to get through some really basic information, but having that basic foundation of knowledge, I think really helped us build our case yeah. the way that we wanted. And I think the first thing, you know, we had to talk about is what is OSHA? Why do we have OSHA there? You know, this is because people were getting killed. You have to protect people. And then, you know, and this is what we have rules and these are mandatory rules. They have to be followed. They're not options. And bad things happen. People are injured or killed, but they don't follow the rules. Then we had to go into what trenching was and why it was dangerous and then got to have authority for that. And then, you know, I don't want to have this as big, long regulation. And so, and, and we didn't make this up. We got it from an OSHA poster, but we said, you have to do the three S's. You have to either what's called sloping, which is where you have a general slope instead of a, a straight up and down wall at the trench. Shielding, which is using a trench box or shoring, which is having an engineer come out and design a system to keep the trench from collapsing. But you have to do one of those three and those are the only three things you can do. Uh, and so if you don't follow the three S's, then you endanger the lives of your Actually, what we came up with, you're gambling with the lives of your of your employees if you don't use follow three S's. If you do, then you're protecting them from being killed by cavens. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that simplifying it makes it so much easier. And, you know, you can remember the three S's really easy. Um, I will say that uh, for people listening, this isn't, this strategy isn't something that 
you can come up with the night before and it will work. <laughs> um, we actually worked on this for, I've been working on it for over a year, the visual aspect of it. We worked for days with our expert um, to come up with a plan for what order we're presenting things in so that it made sense. And we're building the blocks, we're building the tower of evidence, but um, how the expert should present it, how, where to stand, where to point, how to talk about it. All of those things have to be practiced. um, And it's not something that comes naturally, especially to expert witnesses who aren't used to doing testimony that way. And he wasn't comfortable with it. Uh, And I love him, but he's a soft-spoken, not, you know, particularly dynamic speaker, uh, very credible person, I think, and Uh, and very knowledgeable. But I think, you know, we got this let him get off the witness stand, be more teachery. And I don't think he would have presented as well had we not had all these visuals. But yeah, it was a lot of, and even like, you know, after we printed up, we found things that we needed to change when we went through them. And the thing we found is that, you know, like we had a hundred and you think I want to put this one little point in this little, and then you find that some of your posters are repetitive. Right. And so some of them we'd already planned not using, and some of them I made a game time decision because I could tell that the majority already got it. And if I had used that next poster, that I was going to start losing them. And just by just watching body language, eye contact with people as to whether or not they're getting it. I skipped some posters once we got in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's what's the cool thing about the posters is the problem with like a PowerPoint is that it's harder to make those little decisions. Like you're skipping past stuff and then you're lost and you can't. Whereas the posters, you just look at it and you say, I'm not ready for this one. Go to the next one or whatever. And you're right in the jury's face. um, So you can see if they're getting it, if they're reading it, if they're on the same page, if you need to go back, if they're lost, you can go back, you can keep referring back to things easily. Um, so that's kind of why we liked the printed posters yeah. in that scenario better than the PowerPoint. It's a little easier to yeah. go back and forth. Yeah, we use the computer to present documents uh, and photos. And I, and I did do some PowerPoint for my close. Right. And it made to, sense there. To present. But that was more because I was going through, you know, some evidence. You know, if they say this, you know, look, they just don't take notes. So if they if they say X, look at exhibit. You know, I, I put it up, you know, exhibit three on page five. It says this in exhibit eight on page two. It says this. Write this down. So if they say this, this is how you argue back. And it's where you can look because uh, I knew that they were going to get try to confuse them on a couple of issues that I knew we were right. Um, but yeah, I'm glad we used the the posters, but it took two sessions, uh, multi-hour sessions with our expert uh, to get him somewhat comfortable with, with doing that. And then it also, you know, we also had to make sure we had them ordered with the one in the right order so that we weren't digging for stuff at trial. So we had to put them someplace easy to reach in the right order. Stacks that weren't too big, but not too small. I mean, it was uh, just practice. That's all I can tell you. It was. It took a lot of practice. It's not something that just materializes overnight. The other really cool thing that happened with the boards, which I just loved um, because I made a lot of the boards. And so I, was, I really loved them. <laughs> um, but, but is that um, if the jury wanted you to move out of the way so they could see the boards, so they could make sure they understood it, they would just ask in the middle of... <laughs> They would say, you know, I can't see that or I need, can you move a little bit over? And I, I thought that that meant that they were really connecting with the method. Yeah. Um, they were getting it. They were understanding why it was important, what they needed to look at. And they cared about looking at it. So. And, I, and I felt they felt comfortable enough to, I mean, it doesn't happen in most trials, but actually speak up. Say, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't get that. Can you, can you hold it differently? Can you get out of the way so I can see better? Can you ask someone else to get out of the way so we can see better? Right. Uh, it was nice because you felt like you're building your team. Yeah. Yeah. So that was... I don't know if that had to do with boards or if it had to do with this jury panel or what it had to do. I mean, who knows? But, yeah. um, but I appreciated that the jury seemed to understand how we were using them and what they needed to get from that information. So after the expert, uh, we did have some police. We had some videos that we had to present some police officer testimony to prove up photos and information that they found and people that they interviewed and stuff like that. So, and how deep the trench was when they got there. And- right. Um, so uh, we actually had um, a person in our office do the video edits and take out the really long pauses and stuff like that, which I actually think was great because each of our videos was only... I don't think any of them was over 15 minutes long. No, they're all under 15 minutes, um, which was awesome. And that way we could play them 
quickly. We're not boring the jury. And we spaced them out so we weren't playing a bunch of videos back to back. We did damages first and then kind of the forensic pathologist autopsy kind of bridge between liability and damages. And then you did all the damage witnesses. Yeah. And to correct you, we did liability first and then we did the forensic pathologist. I thought, I thought that's what I said. Okay. <laughs> um, we did liability right. first and then we did the forensic pathologist as a bridge because she has her opinions as the mechanism of injury was consistent with our theory of the case on liability. But then she also talked about how he was killed and uh, it was gruesome, unfortunately, in this case. Uh, and then moved on into damages. And uh, so you had to discover some stories of this case. So what was, what did you do to find out what those stories were and how to tell them? Um, so I spent a lot of time with the client and her, um, witnesses. So, uh, frankly, the only way you get it is by spending time and building trust and listening to stories and listening to, unfortunately, the same stories over and over until, um, until they feel comfortable to tell you the real stories. Right. So every client, um, I think it was, was it Randy McGinn that said this, that some, that clients tell you what they think that you want to hear. Um, sometimes to get you to take the case, but, right. but they often tell you what they think will be helpful to the case because they don't know, they don't know anything about presenting cases. Right. And so to get the real stories, you just have to spend time, um, and build that trust. Uh, so a lot of the stories we didn't get until the day before trial, <laughs> even though we'd met, I'd met with the clients and her witnesses multiple times. And at the house and everything. You Every, everything. And the night before we got some new stories that were great that we ended up using at trial. Yeah. And, not, and not that the new stories were like something different. It's just they were details that we didn't have before. Right. As right. As, uh, things they've done together. Um, and the thing is that the details are important. Um, yeah. The it can't be, it's never effective to say, um, I'm sad because he died. They know that they want to know how you're sad or what are the things that you're missing out on? And it's, right. it has to be stuff that people can connect to and that are specific and spending time teaching your client how to tell stories. Um, and what makes a good story is something that you cannot skip. People don't know how to tell stories. Um, and not just the client, but the better daughter or her, sister-in-law or sister, you know, everybody. Luckily in this case, we had just a really great client and really great witnesses. Um, but our client was sort of a natural storyteller. Um, but we didn't realize that but, in cause she was right. so guarded. Right. And part of it is she had been kind of passed around. Uh, she did not, you know, before our referral lawyer got the case, did not necessarily feel particularly not, and, and it could have been her perception because there's the, Lawyers she had before seemed to be the, the ones I know are nice people, but she did not feel very respected in the process. The continuances made her feel so she was distrustful. She distrustful. She felt very disrespected. She had a lot of still grief and depression that wasn't fully treated. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's, it took a while to break through to her. Uh, now, one disadvantage, you know, you did all the workup on this case. And so I, I literally, you and I talked about strategy. Yeah. But other than, I think I did the pathologist depot. Right. And I was going to do the co-worker depots and then they were too scared to show up and didn't show up yeah. for their depots. Uh, and so I didn't really meet the client until a few weeks before trial. And I didn't really get to know her until like a couple of days before. And I was still going through the emotional journey of the case during the trial, and I have mixed feelings about that. And on one hand, I was really connected with her. Uh, on the other hand, I was probably, I don't know, there's nothing wrong with showing emotional emotion in trial, but I think I was overly emotional. I mean, I cried more than I wanted to in closing. Mm -hmm. I got mad and yelled once at the defendant. Uh, he deserved it. I mean, because um, I thought he had manufactured the report that they put in and then, you know, we, we had discovery advice to compel documents and all their training documents were dated after our date of our death. Right. There were no training documents they gave. And then on the witness saying, was, well, I'm sure I'm in the archive. I'll bring them back tomorrow. And I just lost it. Well, you're going to make them, you're going to go make them up. Like you made up the other document. And, yeah. But I should not yell. That was unprofessional. Uh, it was real. It was real. I just snapped. And, right. I, but I think had I not, been going through the journey, had I been able to process the before far enough in advance before trial, I may have been 
a little more in control, a little less sobby during my closing because I don't know if it was too much or not. I just don't know. Well, it, you know, it's hard to know. We didn't. Who knows yeah. what the jury thought about it? I don't. I don't know what the jury thought about it. Um, but uh, I think that there is something to be said for making sure that you fully processed. The, your case um, yeah. and your own emotions and your own connection to it before um, before trial because I think it made the trial harder for you. Um, so I don't know that it was ineffective, but I think for you emotionally it was a much rockier road through the trial. Yeah. Um, then so I think it was more stressful for you. I, I just think it was harder for you to um, enjoy it and. I mean, it's yeah. just harder for you. The liability part, I was having a blast. Right. Uh, but it was an emotional, it, it, the trial was emotionally rough on me. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to drive back. We get this million, multi million dollar verdict, and I'm just, uh, it's a weird feeling. It, I felt good the next afternoon, but it just took me time to process. It was just such, we were dealing with so much pain. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is kind of a unique case. I mean, we- Trying a really gruesome death case is different than trying a back injury case. Yeah. It just is. Um, there's a different kind of an emotion attached to it and different kind of emotions from your witnesses. Um, yeah. And it's, I think, psychologically, it's always tougher to try this kind of case just because it is. And so if you don't give yourself time to deal with that, then it just, it can really take a toll on you. Yeah. Luckily we were doing, you know, I actually exercised during the the week. Uh, I, we did our protein shakes. I meditated every morning before trial, prayed every night. You know, I just, I did the things I needed to do to keep mentally is, and I think, and I think we were sharp all the time the trial. I never felt big energy drops. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, um, I think it went pretty smoothly. Um, you know, overall, everything yeah. kind of went went smoothly. I don't yeah. know how else to say it. The witnesses were available. We didn't have any weird, you know, calls where people didn't show up or something like that. I mean, yeah. there was um, when I did put on the damages witnesses, they went pretty smoothly. Um, they told the stories that I expected them to tell. There wasn't any crazy, yeah. you know, something that came out in the trial that was unexpected or anything like that, uh, really, from them. That that all worked out, I think. Yeah. The one last thing I want to talk about, and it's something I'd heard about before, but I've never experienced it before. Mm-hmm. And we talked a lot about this, uh, is the potential of a trial to heal. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, something I'd never seen before. Yeah. So how did it play out in this case? Oh, boy. I'm going to get emotional. So one of the biggest harms, I thought, is that we had a woman who felt that she was disrespected, that nobody cared about her, that no one cared about the death of her husband. The 20-something thousand dollar fine that OSHA gave did not particularly change that uh, on a $1.2 million construction project. Uh, And she just really, and it dragged on for a long time, and she really... She had some probably pretty low self-worth. A lot of the the love story we had is this is someone, like the first man in her life that actually made her feel like, like she was someone special. She was better than she thought she was. And, you know, and she felt that when she lost the most important thing she had, that people didn't care. Uh, and that maybe she wasn't, maybe secretly deep down worthy of people caring to have a jury give a verdict and put, you know, I think it was two and a half million dollars for her mental anguish. Very emotional for her. Hoping it's going to be very healing for her. I think it was very cathartic. It gave her a closure that she needed. Gave her a sense of the community saying that you matter, that he mattered. And uh, whether we actually end up getting her three point something million plus interest or whether he gets taken away someday. I think just that healing was worth all the work. Sorry, crack up. Yeah. The you know, for her and it was very real when the jury started reading their verdict and they put they started putting money in the blanks. Um she 
just started sort of sobbing uncontrollably, but it was sort of a, it, it wasn't a sadness and it wasn't even a happiness. It was a, finally someone heard me, finally someone's listened to me and they've believed me yeah. and they're showing me that they believe me. And that it's, it was very, very powerful. And, um, so I've had, I've had both experiences. I've had a death case where we've lost and that is a very powerful hurt that I want to avoid inflicting. In fact, there's cases that we're now not taking where we could settle for something okay, but it's a death and we don't feel like something okay is enough to really make a difference in the person's life. And if it gets pushed to trial, you know, more likely than not, that's going to happen. And, you know, I'm not in an economic position where I need to take those cases. Someone else will take it and that's fine, but I don't want to put someone through that. Uh, but also, I think there's some other cases I'm more likely to go to trial on now because I think that that jury verdict brought more closure than a settlement would have brought. I, I think so, too. Um, the for I think I've seen this in every single death case that I've ever handled. The case itself is the last stage of closure yes. for people who've lost someone. And because the cases go on for so long, just because of the nature of the justice system, it's slow. Um, it, it's hard for people to leave it because yeah. it's sort of the last step of trying to move forward with your life. You never move, I mean, you never move on, but it's, it's just moving forward and you, you can be stuck in that place and you have permission to be stuck because you have this case going on, but then no one gives you permission anymore after that. Yeah. And so even in settlements, you have very reasonable settlement for a death case. Um, it's still very hard for people because it's sort of the last stage of letting go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in this case for her, my hope is that this can be the last stage of her letting go and trying to move forward, not move on, but move forward yeah. in her life. And I had a big talk with her about that afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people do care about you. You're a wonderful person that has worth and, you know, don't waste the rest of your life. You need to be there for you. You need to be there for your daughter. You know, it's time to take this as something acknowledgement that you are loved. You are worthy now, get off your ass and do something. Uh, yeah. I didn't say those words, but right, yeah, right. Uh, you know, because she was so down, she basically gave up on life and just would hardly even leave the house. Uh, and uh, I'm hoping that this, uh, and I think I really do think it's going to happen. I really think that this verdict is going to inspire her because uh, she had a lot of self realizations. Like, while well, so down myself, I wasn't there with my daughter. And, and I think the whole process was very psychologically healthy for her. I, think, I do truly believe that irrespective of the money, I think this, this process and her community believing in her and it validating her is going to help her in life. Yeah, I think so, too. Well, I hope this is helpful. I know it's really fact specific to our case, uh, but it's always interesting to. I, I always like hearing about trials. So I hope this was useful to y'all. Uh, if you have any other follow up questions, feel free to send them to us or put them on our Trial Lawyer Nation's Insider Circle uh, Facebook group. But uh, we will be doing another Facebook Live here in a few weeks. Uh, the date will be announced. I don't remember what it is. So, uh, but our, at least our marketing man, director will sure announce it as part of the other stuff you hear on this episode. So if you have any other questions, ask and I'll be glad to answer them. By, by the way, Michael, before you do our closeout, I just want to say that some of the people who tuned into the Facebook Live got a really interesting <laughs> treat uh, because it happened to be, if you don't know, it happened to be while we were uh, picking a jury. So we, uh, because of the change in the schedule and all that, um, we didn't want to move the Facebook Live. And so we, Michael finished picking a jury and then the judge was nice enough to uh, let us borrow the jury room and Michael was able to do a real 
quick um, Facebook Live. I, I was think. arguing cause strike still, <laughs> um, and he had to sneak out to do that. So that was that was interesting during this trial, but it was really nice for the judge to accommodate. That. Well, I had a good judge and I had a good partner who I absolutely could trust to do it without me there too. <laughs> yeah. So that uh, trials are a lot easier when you have a good partner to try the case with. <laughs> and so look forward to our next one. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, I look forward to having you next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you're listening to this episode on a mobile device, please click on ratings and review and leave our show a five-star rating and write a review. And if you're listening to this episode from our website, please leave a five-star rating on the episode page. We'd love to reach more listeners and doing this will help more attorneys find this podcast. You can also visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list so you can stay updated on our new episodes. I promise we won't spam you. And thanks to your feedback, we've improved our podcast website. There's now a resources tab that you can click that shows you all the books we've mentioned on our podcast. If you have a Facebook account, please send us a request to join a private group called Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about our guests before an episode airs, interact with the show, and get a sneak peek at some of the behind-the-scenes moments. I love to hear from all of you, and our Table Talk episodes are based solely on questions from our fans. So please continue to send us emails at podcast at com. Thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.